we have been looking at the pattern, the shape, the frame of every narrative that you find in the story of the Bible. Every, every, every story that tells us about the life of a woman or a man in all of Scripture follows a particular pattern. And this pattern is represented in all of the great stories of the world, often because those stories are based upon the themes that you find in Scripture. We often forget that Scripture is by far and away the most important and influential piece of literature known to humankind throughout all of the millennia that we've known in the modern world. And this, this structure of the story that we, that we look at in Scripture is the story of the call of the hero, the challenge of the hero, and the completion of the challenge. And we discover, as we, as we have in these last few weeks, that the call has its own internal narrative. The hero being called, whether she or he really is ready for it or not, this, this hero, with all of their frailties, with all of their weaknesses, with all of their needs, is the one that God has selected to do a great work, a work that's often surprising to the people around them. The internal battles of the, of the hero are so clearly portrayed in Scripture. The battle of personal weakness. The battle of looking to little indulgences that would prevent us from taking on the big story that God is calling us into. Today we're going to look at one of the great heroes of the Bible, perhaps after Jesus, the greatest. The one who, when you look at the Old and the New Testament, is the one who's referenced the most. We're going to look at the call of the person called David. And we're going to look at a particular, a particular element of his calling. We're going to look at the hidden preparation of the hero. The hidden preparation of the hero. All of you are called to be heroes. You and I are called to a heroic journey. And in that heroic journey, there will be a fulfillment that will touch more than our life. God's intention as He made us and saves us is that we become partners with Him in the redemption and in the transformation of His world. And so it may be that you never find a platform. It may be that you don't get lots of likes on social media. But as a hero, God has called you to fulfill that calling and touch the lives of others in its completion. But for it to be completed, we have to go through the challenge, which we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. And to go through the challenge, we have to be able to embrace the process of the call, which is so often a hidden thing. So let's look at the life of David, particularly the narrative of his call, And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer and as you go, say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They said, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass before Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel went to Ramah. Samuel's from Ramah. He's the last of the judges. He is the one that's been sent by God to begin the royal lineage of Israel. First of all, Saul was chosen, who was head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel, a man of noble bearing, but massive personal struggles, enormous difficulties with a sense of insignificance and insecurity. And they came out in really unhelpful and unpleasant ways. And eventually, those, those obstacles within became insurmountable challenges without. And the Lord came to the reluctant decision that he could no longer be king over Israel. And so sent Samuel to find another. And you've just heard what it is that's, that's recorded there of this amazing moment. Samuel would be a combination of Winston Churchill and Billy Graham. So if he turns up in your village, you'd be very, very concerned that everything was going to go okay. 
because he's this man with this enormous gravitas. No doubt quite a stern visage, but most certainly a challenging presence. And so they wanted to check that Samuel had not come to chastise them or to bring a word of judgment. And so he set their minds at rest and had the people consecrate themselves, which meant that they went through a period of purification, a period of spiritual preparation in time for the sacrifice. That is, everyone except David and maybe a couple of others who were not invited to the consecration or to the sacrifice because they were out doing the job of shepherding. Even today, when you go to the hills around Bethlehem, you can find sheep on the hillside. When you go through the landscape of the wilderness of Judea, you can find the little Bedouin boys with their sheep by the water holes. I can remember seeing them. I think I may have mentioned this before. I remember seeing a couple of these shepherd boys with their flocks, watering them at a water hole in the Judean uplands. And there was really no one else around, and I could hear the lilting song of the shepherds as they sang to their sheep. And as they sang to their sheep, they took off in different directions, and you could see the sheep look up, identify the voice of their shepherd, and begin to separate themselves from all of the other sheep until the two flocks were clearly differentiated and were going off in different directions. And I thought, wow, just like Jesus said, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. But the voice was being expressed, articulated in song. The, the biblical historians and archaeologists tell us that when in the time of the Scriptures, shepherds would live in the fields with their sheep, unable to come into the settlements, they would develop particular skills. These particular skills were often the skills of a musician and the skills of a warrior, which is a kind of a surprising set of skills. Shepherds were well known as musicians because they had a captive audience that was never going to reject them. Maybe on that particular occasion when David was taking this portable musical instrument with him, his harp, sitting on a rock, this young teenager imagining one sheep talking to another, bragging about their shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd. Who's yours? My shepherd leads me to still waters, green pastures, straight paths. My shepherd leads me through the valley where the predators are found, but his presence gives me comfort and strength. You can imagine him singing this little song as he's reflecting on the life of the sheep that he's leading. Of course, there are predators all around. Even to this day, you can hear the 
jackals calling to one another. It's a very eerie sound as you stand in the security of your hotel room and listen carefully to the jackals calling to one another. These predators are everywhere. And the shepherd, with their staff and their rod, would protect their sheep at close quarters. But very often, the predators would not get anywhere near the sheep. Shepherds would have such, such a capacity, such a skill with their sling, that they would be able to take a bird in flight at 50 paces. They've looked and analyzed the power of a stone slung from a shepherd's sling. And the power with which it hits the object is something akin to a bullet from a 45 caliber pistol. When you think about David before Goliath, he thought to himself, man, that's a really big target. I could take him down at 50 paces easy. It didn't even cross his mind that a man of such giant stature with such weaponry could possibly defeat him because he had been trained in the hands of the Lord for this particular battle at this particular time. And what was the preparation? The preparation was the preparation of obscurity. The preparation was the preparation of monotony. He's in the fields every day. What's he going to do? Well, he'll lead the sheep to the watering hole. Sheep can't go very far from water, otherwise they'll die very quickly. He'll take them to the various different places where vegetation can be found. They can't survive long without food. He'll protect them along the way. He'll make sure that during the periods when the predators are most active, that he's most vigilant. And when his sheep are gathered around him, and he's called them, as all of the shepherds at that time, even up to this day, would do calling them by name, and them coming to him as maybe a pet dog would do, he would sing to them. And he would fill out his time but in doing that, he was using the obscurity and the monotony for something that was enormously important, a preparation for a future day of challenge. Preparation for a future day of challenge. I wonder... I wonder whether you've thought about your obscurity. Do you feel unseen? Do you feel unrecognized, unnoticed? Is your work 
rarely heralded by others. Does Monday through Friday feel so often like a monotonous round of same old, same old? Well, how is it that we can look at the life of David, apply it to our life, knowing that we've all been called to be heroes, how can we take this life of David so clearly and beautifully articulated for us in the pages of Scripture and apply it to our life so that what it is that he achieved can be the things that we learn? Well, of course, to do this, we have to reflect more carefully on what it is that David is about. What is it that David is doing to embrace his circumstances as the opportunity for the preparation of a heroic life? In Psalm 72 and verse 78, it talks about David being the shepherd of his people, having a heart of integrity and leading them with skillful hands. So there's clearly something going on in David that is both internal and external that is growing an integrity of heart that's developing a set of skills that can be applied in so many different circumstances that make him this great model, this great exemplar in all of human history, whether it be religious history or not. What is it that's, that's shaping this heart of integrity? A heart which, like a bell, you strike it and it sounds the same note every time. What is it that's happening in David that that's inner work that, that makes his heart the heart of integrity is expressed in the work of his hands that are skillful, well-prepared, so that the work that he's done is celebrated by heaven and earth. I think there are three things that you see about David. And I'll use the, the iPad if that's all right, Claude. The three things that you'll see are that David had a desire. That David understood the nature of duty. And then all of these were articulated in discipline. What is the desire that lives in the heart of David? And what's your desire? So many times now you'll see people expressing that life is really about living out your passion. What is it that you're passionate about? And, and, and once you find your passion, how can you embrace that passion, articulate that passion, express that passion, share that passion? How can you do this? 
And listening to those who espouse this particular philosophy, you would imagine that really as long as you've got a passion, everything's going to be great. Well, David had a desire within him. And the desire was the desire of the worshiper and the warrior. Yeah, he was a shepherd. He took care of his sheep. But, but how did his musical ability that by all accounts was kind of world class, how did that musical ability get beyond humming a hum, as Winnie the Pooh would call it, to writing songs that billions of people down through the centuries sing every day. Forget Lennon and McCartney. This is the songwriter par excellence. Where did that come from? Well, clearly there's a skill that's been imparted to him. There's an ability that's been imparted to him. But if you speak to any musician, they'll tell you it doesn't matter how gifted you are. Without the practice, it'll never become anything that anyone will ever notice. Eric Clapton, one of my favorite guitarists, when he was a, a teenager, spent eight hours a day practicing his guitar. Eight hours a day. He decided that this was the job that he wanted to do, and he decided that this job required of him, a working-class lad, to work on it as if it were the job that his dad did. Eight hours a day. John Mayer, when he lived in Atlanta, took on a similar disposition. You maybe know some of his story, but, but when he was in Atlanta, he basically just buried himself in the task of the daily practice. All of the greats through history, from Mozart to Billie Eilish. Yes, I did mention them in the same sentence are people who have given themselves to the task and practice of developing their craft. It's impossible that, that David had any other kind of experience. What's your desire? How are you working on it? My desire from being the youngest of Christians was to see a transformation in the church in England that seemed to be so dire, so boring, and so desperately unlike anything I read about in the New Testament. I became a Christian reading the Bible, went to church, loved the fact that God was there, but wondered why anybody else would ever want to be there. And so the desire grew in me to see healthy vibrant, growing communities be planted wherever it was that I could, could function. 
after my days in seminary and my years of preparation as an assistant, I had the invitation to go to many of the great churches of England. I was reading in Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, remember those early days when you first received the light, when you were happy to live with the struggles and the sufferings of the people around you. Remember those days. And so I said to Sally, I think the Lord is calling us to that tiny little church with just a few people in Brixton, London. She said, yeah, but I'm a middle-class girl and I, I like the suburbs. I said, yeah, I know. It's gonna be really tough. And so we embraced the journey into obscurity. And in the obscurity, practiced what it meant to find life and health in a community that daily struggled for its existence. And there, the Lord began, because there was no other props or support of the institutional church, there I began to see that what I needed to practice was a pattern that I learned in Scripture was the pattern of the person of peace. Find the person that God has prepared for you because nobody else is interested. So find the person that God has prepared for you and spend time building a relationship with them, looking for them to like you and listen to you and serve you in what it is that you believe God has given you to do. And there this young guy in his late 20s and early 30s began to develop a strategy that today is used in every missionary society around the world. When I wrote it down, nobody had ever recorded it up until that point. So the academic theologians tell me, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just writing down the things that I was doing on the streets of Brixton. But today, the person of peace strategy is used among hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And it began with just my neighbors, poor as they were, working on the streets of the most disadvantaged community, the most invisible community in Britain. Whilst I was there, I discovered something about leadership. I asked myself, why is it that single mothers from ethnic backgrounds that often mean that they have no access to privilege or power. Why is it that they are such amazingly good leaders? And I, I interviewed them, I talked to them, I asked them, and I, I realized that they had this great desire for change. They, they had a great a great sense of calling 
to change the circumstances of the world around them. And the place that they would begin was with their children. And with their children, they would pour into them all of their, all of their life and their energy and their imagination. They easily were capable of leading organizations, even corporations. But they poured their energy in the midst of their obscurity and in the midst of the daily monotony into the lives of their children and into the friends of their children. And little by little, they became amazing leaders and managers. Leaders and managers who would touch the lives of thousands through their children. How many children stride the boards of fame today being raised by a mother in obscurity. So many. And when those parents get to glory, they not only get their crown, but they get all of the stars that are on the crown of their children because God used them to make them what they are. You see, desire is great. Passion is marvelous. But unless it is matched with duty and discipline, it will become little or nothing. David's desire to be a worshiper and a warrior would never have become anything if he had not embraced the obscurity as an opportunity, the monotony as a way to have his time released to him to do the thing that he would never be able to do if he had another job. Practice, practice, practice. So listen carefully, all of you, because all of you are called to heroic life. All of you are called by God, and He has placed His desire in you for the transformation of the world. Receive the desire as a gift of heaven, and then choose to focus that desire in those whom you have a duty to serve and lead. Your children. Your siblings. Maybe your spouse. The people who populate your life and you can't get rid of them even if you want to. That place of duty becomes the place where desire now begins to flourish as something that God can use beyond the tight circumstances of your restricted experience. Jesus, when he was describing the kingdom, said the kingdom is like a seed that you put into the ground. 
hidden, invisible, apparently lost. And then it grows. First the shoot. You can't do anything with the shoot. It's no good digging up the plant, hoping that there'll be something there for you. It's just the shoot. And then, and then the plant. But the plant has no fruit that can be consumed or used. And then the full wheat in the ear. This is a process of patience. A process of commitment. Of taking the desire that God's put in your heart and expressing it to the people you have a duty to serve. You don't hear much about duty on social media, do you? It's so much easier if somebody says, wow, your passion's awesome. Here's a million dollars. But if you ask those folks and if you examine their lives carefully, there's very few people that ever get that. They've usually practiced and practiced and practiced and in invisibility learned the skills that now others celebrate. Receive the desire that God has put in your heart and express that desire amongst those for whom you have a duty. David, he had a duty of care for his sheep. That duty of care for his sheep meant that he protected the sheep. Protecting the sheep meant that he developed skills that one day would cast him onto the stage of history as the giant killer. How about that? When you're making breakfast for the mewling children one more day. When you're taking care of that elderly parent one more day. What is it that God is crafting and fashioning in your heart? Well, if you will, with intention, embrace this as the opportunity for personal transformation, of course, it will be the growth of the kingdom in your life that may be first the shoot and then the plant with no fruit. But in time, there will be the full wheat in the ear. And then you put the sickle in, says Jesus. David had a duty of care for his sheep and had a duty of obedience to a society that was based upon the eldest having the greatest power. Privilege, of course, is given to different people, different times and places in history. White males are incredibly privileged in our culture. In the culture of David, older people were more privileged than younger people. It's called gerontocracy. The old people are the ones with the power. And so the stratification is the oldest has the most power, and then the stratification is the next oldest has the next man of power. And, and so when Samuel comes into this gerontocratic society, he says, show me your son. And they bring out the oldest. Show me another son. 
and they bring out the next oldest. Show me another. They do it seven times. Surely somebody is going to be valuable. Surely somebody. I mean, it really should be the one who has the greatest power and privilege. Surely it should be Eliab. Is there anyone else? Eugene Peterson, when he's translating the passage, has Jesse saying, well, there's still the runt. The runt. There's still the runt of the litter, but he's out looking after the sheep. How about this? He's out looking looking after the sheep. He wasn't even consecrated with everybody else for the sacrifice. He'd been left out of the worship service because he didn't have the time to be able to be there. Everybody else got to share in this amazing moment when this combination of, of Winston Churchill and Billy Graham has turned up to lead a worship service for them, and he's out in the fields. Everybody's forgotten about him, including his father. Do you feel forgotten, hidden, unnoticed? Do you have a desire in the midst of your obscurity? Listen to me. Take the desire and focus the desire on the things for which you have a duty. And then, once you have begun to see the effects of your desire in the place of your duty. Notice the things that have the greatest effect. With our children, we noticed that affirmation worked better than criticism. I know it's a shock. And we we noticed that this was the case. And so we We wanted to find a way that we could express it. I wanted a community that was healthy and growing. And the place that I needed to focus that first was the duty of care that I had for my children. And so once a week, on a Wednesday evening, we had appreciation tea. Now, tea is basically a cup of tea with sandwiches and kind of high tea. And we would go around, the, go around the table asking each of the children, however young they were, what is it they appreciate about everybody else around the table? And sometimes the youngest ones would find something that worked last week and they would just say it again this week. So Sam, little Sam, three years old, would say, I appreciate mummy cooking. I appreciate daddy taking me swimming. And he struggled to appreciate his sisters. (laughs) But little by little, this place of duty for me revealed to me life and growth in this tiny community in our home for which I had a duty. And then I noticed that my children began to invite their friends. And when they invited their friends, they wanted them to come to appreciation times. 
Isn't that interesting? And I know you're not going to believe this, but all of their friends became Christians. I'm looking at this thinking, wait, what? It's that easy? You just have to bring them into an environment where people are affirming and kind and generous? Well, yeah, maybe. It doesn't sound like church. I'll let that sit with you for a minute. And so I began to see that my desire, my longing for transformation in the world began here as I expressed my desire in the duty of care that I had for those that I had to care for. And then I took it on as a discipline. And so today, if you join us for morning prayer at 8.30 every day, there's a question I ask. <laughs> there's a question I ask whoever comes to pray at the beginning of our prayer time. What is it, Laura? What are you grateful for? That's right, Joseph, isn't it? Yeah. What are you thankful for? And the funny thing is, is that people find this as their opportunity for community. And this little prayer group, I mean, it's kind of like the coolest prayer group ever. But now this little prayer group is the ministry team that prays for people and sees them healed on a Sunday morning. How about that? Because the life of Jesus lives in them. And that little place of duty. The elder said to me, what are you going to do when you, when you start? I said, I'm going to pray every day and I'm going to preach on Sundays. Anything else? Not, not right now. Because everything comes from that, you see. And how do I know? Because I've been doing it for so long that the duty has become a discipline that is a joy to me. And my desire to see life and growth and health focused in the places where the duty had to be expressed has become a simple discipline of life. And those simple disciplines of life now overflow into a culture that feels like it's living and breathing the Spirit of God. Listen to me. This is not theory. This is practice. There is a hidden work that God wants to do in you. There is a hidden preparation of your heroic journey. Embrace the obscurity, even the monotony. And take the desire that God has put into your heart and focus it on those for whom you have a duty of care. And then beyond that, 
Begin to observe the things that from your desire are bearing fruit and make those the disciplines of your life. Anybody get it yet? Or you could try the other method, which is wait for lightning to strike and somebody to come up with a great idea and people to recognize you from nowhere. You could try that. I'll see you in heaven. So today, as you consider this hidden preparation of your heroic journey, God is calling you to renew your desire for the things that he's called you to be a partner in. He, he wants to renew them in you. He wants to refire them in you. He wants to renew your commitment to your place of duty. He wants to renew in you the commitment to taking on the disciplines of, of, of practicing the place of fruitfulness and blessing. God wants this renewal for you and for me. Now, of course, we'll pray for the sick and we'll pray for the struggling and we'll see God make breakthroughs on Tuesday night at our prayer time from 6.30 to 8. We saw amazing breakthrough. It was wonderful to, just to be present. God has brought breakthrough upon breakthrough as people have come forward. And, of course, that will happen today. But for you, dear friend, what is this moment all about? This moment is about you, the hero, hearing the call afresh and renewing your commitment to follow.